Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, your hot takes, your observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab about 24 hours ago. We hit the triple digits in comments. How about that? Well done. Appreciate all of you who participate in these mailbags. I pulled about 26 of them. The U.S. Open is around the corner. Life is good. What could be better than this? Let us begin. The first comment is from Hardy Har. Hi, Gil. I recently became aware of an interesting stat. Stefanos Tsitsipas has by far the worst finals record of the current top 10. His record is 10-17. and 17. And the only other player with a losing finals record in the top 10 is Tiafo at 3-4. and four. What's more, 13 of his 17 losses in finals were in straight sets, and only 2 of his 10 wins were over top 10 players. Team at the 2019 Tour Finals and Rublev at 2021 Monte Carlo. I don't mean to dunk on Tsitsipas, and in fact, I think it's very impressive that he's had the consistency over the past several years to remain a fixture in the top 10, despite this obvious shortcoming. It says something that he's top five in the finals race right now, despite only winning one 250 tournament. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on what needs to change in his game or mindset to peak later in tournaments and emerge a champion more often. Well, before I get to the last part of that question... Uh, let me uh, dig even deeper than you did into his finals resume. This is very interesting that you bring this up. I didn't realize this. Uh, I, I knew that he didn't have a good finals record because I knew that it was really bad at outdoor hardcourt tournaments, hadn't won a title at an outdoor hardcourt event until Los Cabos. I knew that he had a terrible record in ATP 500 finals. I... I think he still does. I, I don't think he's won one yet, unless I'm forgetting something. He's like 0-7. But I didn't realize uh, just how bad it was, if I'm being completely honest. The, the interesting part is that most of his finals have been against good players. And he actually hasn't taken a lot of bad losses in finals. His record against players outside the top 10 is 9-3. and three. And I'm counting, by the way, I'm counting something I don't think that you're counting, which is uh, his win over Demonor in the next-gen finals in 2018. That would make his record 11-17 as opposed to 10-17. So I'll count that. 9-3 uh, and three against players outside of the top 10. 
and 2-14 and 14 against players inside the top 10. So there's been a clear line of demarcation that he hasn't had enough great wins against, or I'll say this, he hasn't beaten enough good players in finals, but he hasn't had any issue beating players that he's much better than in finals with a record at 9-3. and three. Also, I feel like the reason why this doesn't feel like it's been a huge deal for his career is that there's only been one loss that he's taken in a big final that has been particularly disappointing, which was against Chorich last year in Cincinnati, a final that not only was he expected to win, but also a final where I found his performance particularly disappointing. Other than that, two major finals, a couple of losses to Djokovic at the Masters level, Nadal, and Djokovic twice, other than the Chorich loss. And then, um, of course, he has the Masters 1000 wins in Monte Carlo over Tsitsipas, or sorry, over Rublev and Davidovich Fakina. And he has the Tour Finals win over Team. So he has had a, a few of those moments. But all in all, it's been a strange case of... He has not performed as well against top 10 players in Finals compared to how he's performed against top 10 players outside of finals. Early in Steph's career, I think uh, he was a ferocious competitor with unlimited belief. He truly thought that he could be number one in the world, that he could have uh, one of the all-time great careers. I, I think he believed that because uh, he was never proven wrong. He was never proven otherwise. And the way he was competing... It really gave that off. He was, again, a ferocious competitor. I think that has dimmed a little bit. It's waned. Do I think that he becomes resigned a little bit more quickly in the last three years compared to what we were seeing 2018, 2019? Yeah. I do think that that, that resignation starts to set in in the way he, you know, when, when he competes against the very, very best in the world. That's something that I've observed. So that is certainly an area where hopefully maybe he can get that back. I think that the move away from Apostolos and to Mark Philippoussis as his full-time coach, that is that shows me that he has a chance to turn something like this around. And it has nothing to do with Philippoussis being someone who is going to give Paz better advice than Apostolos. That might be true, but that's not even what I'm talking about right now. What I am talking about is just showing that you are not okay with where you're at in your career. And I couldn't quite tell with Tsitsipas. Are you all right being a tier two player? Are you all right being someone who makes the year-end championships every single year, who makes a lot of big finals, a couple at least, every year? Are you okay with being that guy or do you are you still hungry to get to the next level to take that next step? For Steph to part ways with his father to me shows me that yeah, he's not okay with how things have been going. He wants to do better. And that's huge for me. That's the kind of thing that might be able to turn this around. But ultimately, in order for him to have a better record in, in finals, um, he uh, the easiest way to do that is just for him to be a player who beats the best in the world more often, honestly. Which, again, in the beginning of his career, youngest player ever to beat Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Youngest player ever to, to have wins over all three. 
I think it was a combination of his uh, qualities as a competitor at that point in his career. Also, maybe they didn't respect his forehand enough at that particular time. And then they, they learned real quick. The whole tour knows now that it's arguably up there with, you know, maybe the best forehand in the world, if not second or third or fourth. And the backhand is the worst in the top 10. Now everybody knows that. I, I don't know. In 2018 and 2019, I don't know if like players were really playing him like that. And uh, I think that also might be a factor. All right, let's move on. Next one is from Dimitri. Hi, Gil. Love your content. Uh, not sure if you've answered this in a previous mailbag, but I'll ask you again because it seems to come up in every tennis comment section. Some people genuinely believe that right now we are in a weak era for tennis when it's really the opposite. I'm not sure if their perspective is just clouded by their disdain for Djokovic and their desire to discredit his every achievement, or if it's just pure ignorance. Regardless of the reason, today's players have almost no weaknesses in their game, and their stamina is unbelievable. Players like Medi and Zverev, who are six foot six and move like gazelles, would be freaks of nature in any past era, yet are chronic underachievers at the moment due to the big three and Alcaraz dominance. I think tennis is the strongest it's ever been quality-wise and will only continue to improve. If you share my sentiment, please repeat it louder for the haters in the back. If you disagree, please offer a rebuttal. Cheers. Awesome comment. There are parts of it I, I agree with and there are parts of it that I disagree with. I agree with your thoughts on Medi and Zverev. The fact that if you plop them into the 1990s, like people would lose their minds. People would be like, who are these aliens? What is going on? What planet are you from? But I also think it's important to note that that's true for every single era. And that likely won't change. I mean, maybe we'll reach some sort of cap uh, but thus far, every era of tennis gets better if you're going to use that kind of logic. If you're going to say, like, what if we took this player and just put them, you know, made them play 20 years ago, every player would dominate. So while I think that's true, I don't think it's a good argument to assess kind of how strong the current era is right now in regards to, I don't know, how difficult does Djokovic have it, right? I think you need to not compare kind of how the players are to previous eras, but try to assess them in a lens of the current era. And look, uh, my take on this in the past has been the Big Three era was not a normal era. And in comparison to the Big Three or even the Big Four, because Andy Murray is an all-time great player who would have won probably seven to nine majors had he played in a more normal era, in my opinion. If you're going to compare an era to that, then every era, or most eras at least, are going to look quite weak. But those who might want to point out that, you know, since Federer left the picture and Nadal has had a rough go in the last year or so, and he's over, you know, various time periods uh, been absent for, for some level of time. Look, Medi and Zverev 
as good as they are, they are highly flawed players. They have large flaws. They have unbelievable strengths, which is why they are as good as they are, because they're just exceptional. But they are they are imperfect tennis players, whereas unless you're really nitpicking, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, they're like kind of perfect tennis players. They are. Movement, yeah. Physical, yeah. Mental, yeah. Offense, yeah. Defense, yeah. Like, it, it's it's kind of the total package. Is Has Djokovic had to compete with that level a lot in the last, you know, couple years? Uh, not always. No, he hasn't always had to compete with that. Uh, now he does because Alcaraz is, yeah, he's... Not flawed. He's not a flawed player. Medvedev and Zverev are. So, uh, Medvedev and Zverev and Tsitsipas, uh, they are better than Raonic uh, and less flawed, in my opinion, and they have greater strengths, brighter strengths than Raonic, Nishikori, Dimitrov. Uh, maybe even, in a lot of ways, they're better than even Ferrer, who you know I love. So yeah, they're 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 very good, but they're also uh they're not like I wouldn't say this is the best era of of tennis ever. Uh no, I, I wouldn't say that either. Uh it was harder to win a major in in 2013 than it is now. This next one is from Beth. And I meant to get to this one uh last week, so glad I, I'm able to get to it now. Hi, Gil. What does Tommy Paul do exactly that bothers Alcaraz so much? It seems just like Sinner that Paul highlights various weaknesses in Alcaraz's game that other players don't exploit or lack the tools to do so. Interested to hear your thoughts. I thought pretty hard about this. I think there are a few dynamics at play. First of all, let me get this out of the way. I don't think Tommy Paul is similar to Yannick Sinner in how he plays tennis. It's pretty different. I also think that part of this is not a stylistic thing. And Alcaraz was a little bit off last year in Canada, was a little bit off this year in Canada in Cincinnati, just not at his very best. And Tommy Paul has shown the mentality that when he believes and he's under the lights and it's a packed stadium and it's showtime and his juices are flowing, man, he's capable of really, really, really high-level tennis. So in my opinion, in my opinion, easily a top 10 level. So you have a player playing a top 10 level against an Alcaraz who's a little bit off and you get close matches and you get a Tommy Paul win. And that in itself is not all that wild. But... I will offer some theories as to why stylistically Paul might give Alcaraz trouble. A couple things. First of all, the way Tommy returns his second serve, returns second serves in general, the way he takes his backhand return early and the ball gets on you really, really fast, he is so good at shortening his backswing on the backhand and taking the ball on the rise on a hard court. And it really helps him attack Alcaraz's second serve or his kick serve out wide in general. 
And then I think when Alcaraz serves to the forehand, uh, Tommy does a pretty good job remaining threatening. It's it's the weaker return, but uh, Paul will still try to play really, really fast. And I think oftentimes he's been able to rush Alcaraz on the plus one by taking the ball early. Now, Sinner plays very, very fast. We've talked about rushing Alcaraz, but Yannick does it with his power. Tommy does take a lot of time away. So I think Tommy plays fast in his own way, and that's good against Carlitos. But I think more significant is uh, how much pressure he applies with his net rushing. And that might give Alcaraz a little bit more trouble turning defense to offense from the back of the court. And that was a big deal in Canada. In Cincinnati, you can look at Tommy Paul's numbers at net. They were actually pretty poor. He actually got passed a lot, and he had a lot of unsuccessful forays coming forward. But I do think that that helps him play Alcaraz well. As well. So, playing fast off the return, taking the ball early, coming forward. Those are the big things. Now, what's the best part of Tommy Paul's game in general? It's his movement. It's his athleticism. By the way, he totally shuts down the Alcaraz drop shot. I think I, I mentioned this in some video uh, in Canada. But, yeah, he shuts down Alcaraz's drop shot completely. He hugs the baseline. He's really, really quick. He has great hands when he comes forward. And, and he volleys well. So there's literally nothing about Paul's game, particularly on a hard court, that leaves the drop shot open. So now it's Alcaraz trying to finish with his power. Tommy's a great absorber of the power on the backhand side. It's the forehand side where I don't think he's a great absorber of power. But for some reason, Paul's forehand has held up against Alcaraz in the two matches that they that they played, uh, at least this year. And that's been the main key for him. So that's my, my answer for why Tommy has bothered Alcaraz so often. And by the way, the match that they played in Miami, it was a 6-4, 6-4 win for Alcaraz. That was great tennis. But that was Alcaraz A-level. That was Alcaraz at his very best. I guess what I'm saying is I think that form had something to do with what we saw these last two weeks. Next one is from Andrew. Do you think the burgeoning rivalry with Alcaraz will give Djokovic an extra level of motivation that could extend this late prime stage of his career? In the past, you've mentioned motivation as a potential barrier with Novak. Curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I've talked about this. Uh, I think, uh, I think yes. I think having a rival that is pushing you is, first of all, something that Novak will be very used to. He's had that his entire career. To continue to have that, to me, is a great thing for his motivation. When he has to get up early in the morning and continue to be as disciplined and focused and hardworking as any other player ever, it helps to have somebody who's pushing you to get there. It helps. So, yeah, it's a good thing for Novak's motivation. From Mark. Hey, Gil, love your content. Just curious. I've observed with Djokovic versus Alcaraz head-to-head that it seems like the underdog has generally come out on top. Is there some sort of underdog mentality that allows them to play better as an underdog? I feel like I've noticed it in Novak's career a bit overall, but I may be off. I also realize it's a fairly small sample size with their head-to-head. Yeah, this is pretty true. This is pretty true. But I think the only match where I can say that the 
underdog status played a real role was at Roland Garros. It's because it's possible that if coming into that match, Alcaraz, who was the favorite, who was the favorite in that match, according to the odds, according to many onlookers, including me, if that wasn't the case and Alcaraz felt like he wasn't, there wasn't a lot of pressure on him to win, then obviously that match could have gone significantly differently because it was ultimately the pressure and the stress that Alcaraz was feeling that made it impossible for him to win that match. He couldn't handle it. That's the only match where I think that the underdog status versus the favorite status really played a big role. But other than that, you are right. Uh, in the Madrid match, I I could be misremembering, but I, I think that Djokovic would have been the favorite coming into that match, uh, even though Alcaraz was coming off of a win over Nadal and Novak was still getting it going. Uh, I, I still feel like Novak would have been the favorite there, just given Alcaraz hadn't, hadn't quite arrived as the Tier 1 player yet. Not quite. He was getting there. Certainly at Wimbledon, Novak was the favorite. And uh, in Cincinnati, Novak was the favorite. So, oh, I'm sorry. Let's, uh, let's also talk about that then. That's another zag. Djokovic was the favorite in Cincy. He was, uh, I think I saw the line at minus 150 in American odds. I know that means nothing to you uh, you Europeans, but uh, yeah, he, he was the favorite. And that's just because of the form coming in. Novak looked very, very sharp. He was winning his matches in straight sets. Alcaraz was reeling. Alcaraz was struggling. And that is what made the odds what they were, especially because of the time on court disparity. Ten and a half hours versus five hours. That's a that's a pretty big deal. And that's why Djokovic was the favorite. So favorite one last time. From Nico. Hey Gil, what are your thoughts on ATP's newly invented baseline financial security system? Yeah, uh the ATP has uh, they announced recently, let me let me pull this up. The ATP has announced Baseline, a transformative financial security program for ATP players set to launch in 2024 as part of a three-year trial. Comprised of three pillars, Baseline represents a significant step. I'm going to try to skip the PR stuff. Okay, the first pillar of the program is guaranteed base earnings, which guarantees minimum income levels for the top 250 ranked singles players each season. In case a player's prize money earnings finishes below the guaranteed threshold, the ATP will step in to cover the shortfall. For the 2024 season, these levels are 300,000 if you're top 100, 150,000, 101 to 175, and 75,000, 176 to 250. This assurance will empower players to plan their seasons with greater certainty, focus on their game, and invest in their teams. This includes covering the expenses of coaches and personal physios as well as travel. Uh, then there's injury protection, providing support to players who play fewer than nine uh, ATP Tour and Challenger Tour events in a season due to injury. 
This uh, progressive initiative includes thresholds set at 200,000 for top 100, 100,000 for 101 to 175, and 50,000 for 176 through uh, 250. So uh, then there's a newcomer investment where rising stars are going to get some cash. All right, this is this is cool. This is good. It's uh, probably not as good as it sounds when you read the press release just because most players are clearing the earnings that that are being offered up here. So if I go to the top 100 and the number for the top 100 is 300,000, I'm going to click on you know someone who's had a a borderline top 100 year, but not all that great, you know, just kind of normal year. Let's go with uh, Jason Kubler. Jason Kubler this year has made double. I mean, he's made $660,000 and he is 86 in the world and his record is 13 and 13 this year. So there aren't going to be a lot of guys in the top 100 who don't make $300,000 when the year is all said and done. Now let's go to let's go to the next pillar. Um, what was it? Uh, I actually exited it out. So um, let's do this real quick. I think it's worth it. Let's see. Like let's go to the world number maybe two hundred and let's see if they've cleared seventy five thousand dollars in prize money. Let's go to the world two hundred because up to two hundred and fifty you get seventy thousand dollars. All right, have I heard of these people? Vit Koprevive, I've I've heard of him. Let's see how uh, he's world number one ninety eight right now. Vit Kopriva. he has made one hundred twenty thousand dollars this year. So I think what you'll find is that this isn't going to really do much for the vast majority of players, uh, but probably for injured players, it will will make quite a difference. And uh, and that's good. That that that's a really good thing because when you get injured you still kind of deserve income. Uh, you still have to support the people around you. Likely, there's a lot of expenses that you still have to cover. And uh, I think it's really a really good thing for injured players to get some relief so that they're making at least something. Uh, and by the way, even a lot of endorsement deals, sponsorship deals, have like minimum matches played into the contract. So don't think that you get injured and you're still collecting checks from your racket sponsor and your clothing sponsor because that is that's actually not how it works more often than not. For the top guys, yeah, but for more often than not, that's not how it works. So this is good, but I, I would say like it's it's even better as a PR move for the ATP than it is in terms of actually helping the players. Next one from Jesper547. Was this the greatest best of three sets final ever? Curious what you think about this. Although recency bias might play a role, I really rate this as one of the greatest best of three finals. The end of the second set and the third really delivered. Love your analysis. Appreciate it. And thank you for being a member, Jesper. You can hit the join button. It is uh, a contribution of $2 a month to support the channel. I really appreciate it. Best of uh, the greatest best of three sets final ever. Look, the famous ones I think are uh, Djokovic, Djokovic Nadal in Madrid in 2009. You know that one gets a lot of acclaim. 
I do think sometimes, though, when there's a number, when there's like a length and a match goes really, really long, it makes it such a layup. It's so easy to kind of say, like, look, it's it's epic. It's one of the greatest ever. It's awesome. And sometimes I think maybe we kind of forget some of the great best of three matches that just aren't crazy long, and I think that's true in best of five as well. But because a lot of these best of five set matches are so historic, they they stick with us so much longer, and that's why it's so hard to remember these best of three set finals. Uh, now, 2020, match of the year, and this is why I love that I do Monday Match Analysis Awards after every season, is it it is a good way to track these things and remember these things. Match of the year in 2020 was a best of three set match. It was uh, Djokovic versus Medvedev in the ATP Cup final, which was uh, just a through-the-roof quality with a really, really excellent crowd and a ton of third-set drama. So, I mean, I just think it was it was so good. 10 out of 10, A-plus match. And then that year at the majors, none of the major finals in 2020 were were really great. I mean, one of them was incredibly memorable, team over Zverev at the U.S. Open. But none of them were were excellent matches. So at the end of the year, the best match was ATP Cup. How about that? Let's go to Tanak. Hi, Gil. Do you think the... Uh, hi, Gil. Why do you think the U.S. Open doesn't do a live draw ceremony? Why isn't there more transparency? Thanks for all the time and effort into your channel. You are very welcome. Look, I work for the U.S. Open, but I am not afraid to say I wish they did. I wish they did. And pretty much every tournament. Now, obviously, some events will live stream their draw ceremony. And that's cool. That That's better. That's great. But I would go a step further. Everyone is dropping the ball on draws. The the ATP, all four majors could do better. It, it, I, I really think it just should be a bigger deal. It should be an entertainment product when the draw comes out. And if there's any tournament directors or anybody in any kind of position of power who is listening to this or watching this uh, wants to hit me up so I can give them my ideas, feel free to go ahead and, and do that, and I would be more than happy to be involved or help in any way. But, yeah, I just think if you can make it an event when the draw comes out and you can bring information and analysis and punditry to that moment from an, from an official channel, at the same time you are revealing the draw and you can draw it out and make it a product, I, I think you have something there. I, I really do. There are a lot of things in sports that are turned into entertainment products that are maybe at face value, not necessarily obvious opportunities to be that. Uh, the most clear comparison is the NCAA tournament bracket reveal, which is a massive, massive deal for CBS every year, who's had the rights to that in the U.S., uh, but even the drafts, the NBA draft, the NFL draft, the NBA draft, like you do realize they could just draft and tell us who every team picked. That doesn't need to be a TV show. But they have turned what is technically 
an administrative transaction, which is drafting players. They have turned it into a television show. And it's massive. It's huge, the draft. Look, maybe this, maybe a tennis draw can never quite be like that. But especially if I'm the ATP and I can do it for every single Masters 1000, I can make an, an entertainment product out of the draw reveal. I am absolutely 100% doing that. Or the WTA, obviously. The reason I didn't say the WTA immediately is because they are a further ways away from investing in something like that. I mean, they're, all of their digital media is, is way behind the ATP, unfortunately. Okay. Let's go to the next one. It is from BVB Forever. Hi, Gil. Love your content. Almost everybody thinks that Djokovic will win another few slams, but in my opinion, it's quite likely that he won't be able to beat Alcaraz again next year. The development of Alcaraz is so fast, it's almost impossible to win a slam without beating Alcaraz due to his dominance. What do you think about that? I think that development rarely goes in a straight line, and it always stops at some point. So I, I completely understand your kind of, I don't know, your general thought here, which is that, wow, what if Alcaraz just keeps getting better? Eventually, he's just going to beat everybody. Nobody's going to be able to beat him, and that's going to be that. And in a way, that's true. If Alcaraz continues to make improvements from where he's at now, if he has another productive, highly productive offseason, which, by the way, I think he had last year, and I think he is much, much better in 2022 than he was, uh, sorry, than he was, he's much, much better in 2023 than he was in 2022, and I don't even think that that was a given, but it happened. If he does that again next year, you're right, he's going to be a major, major problem, and he will be the biggest factor in regards to how many more Djokovic can win, ultimately. So those things, I'm, I'm with you on all those things. It's just, it, it's not to be assumed that Alcaraz's development is going to go in a straight line. And it's not to be assumed, or it is to be assumed actually, that at some point it will level off. Not to say that it will level off permanently, but even if you look at Djokovic and Nadal and, and Federer, at a certain point, they stopped being a, a rocket ship, right? They stopped getting better at a rapid, rapid, rapid pace. And they started getting better slowly and incrementally. And the question is, when does that start happening for Alcaraz? Could be very soon. We could already be there in that in that kind of moment. Uh, or, you know, you're right. Like, this offseason, if, if he comes out and his serve is at the level of, uh, you know, goes up a couple notches, his first serve— or something like that. Yeah, that 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 would be significant. Next one is from Adam. This is an uh, an Apple Podcast review. Again, you can always leave mailbag questions on Apple Podcasts, and uh, I appreciate that because it helps the the pod become more visible. All right, Adam says my question is that I've been wanting to ask you, why is Borna Chorich so inconsistent? You ask as he beats Michael Moe on my television screen. Like literally, that's creepy timing. Just beat Michael Moe in two hours, 48 minutes. That's a long time. That that took a while. 
I I tend to blame the forehand with Chorich. But what is kind of strange is that he's a physical player. He's a consistent player. I really like him not only physically, but also mentally. And those kinds of players tend to not be all that streaky. They tend to be very consistent, but they struggle to beat the, the best. And I'm surprised that Chorich doesn't take on a profile that's a little bit more similar to that. I think when it comes to breaking into the top 10 and becoming a top player, the offensive tools are really lacking. You know, his backhand is his best shot, but we often see with players whose backhands are their best shot that they can be a little bit offensively limited. You don't want your backhand to be your best shot. You want to have a big, bad forehand. It is telling that when I did the top 10, top 10 forehands, that a lot of people who didn't see the comment correctly, thought that I was giving my top 10 forehands overall because that's how good everybody's forehand is in the top 10. At the very least, if it's not big, it's consistent like Medvedev's. Chorich is kind of the... Chorich can hit it big when he has a lot of time. But other than that, it's uh, it's just a problematic forehand. You think back to his Cincinnati run, though. I want to do that. Uh, when he went on that big run in Cincinnati, the number one thing that we were looking at with Chorich was his serve. And the question was, is he going to continue to serve at this level? Because he was crushing the ball. 130. Big time ace rates. Well, the results are in. I'm going to read you his ace rates. Well, first I'll tell you his ace rate for 2023. It is 6.1%. 6.1. Here are his ace rates in that run at Cincinnati. 9 .3, 12 .8, 27 .1, 16, 12 12.8, 27.1, 16, 12.5, 9.7. So... What's that? Probably an average, like double digits, double digit ace rate average. All higher than six. Every single match higher than six. So I think that tournament, to a certain extent, will age as an event where Borna Chorich's serve got red hot. And on a quick surface, that can, that can mean quite a bit. And that is why he was able to Go on that awesome run at Cincinnati last year. By the way, ranking right now 29 in the world. Also, he's been injured a lot. That should that should be mentioned. Next one is from Roberto. Hi, Gil. Thanks for the great content. As always, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Ferrero's coaching, specifically on the frequency and level of detail of his instructions to Carlitos throughout a match, and also... How big you think their impact is, especially in, in moments when Carlos might be executing a wrong strategy and not seeing it immediately or making an adjustment. I should clarify that, that, is, that this is not to throw shade on the fact. Just curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, there are probably some, some toxic aspects of this conversation, you know, with folks who are uh, very much wanting to discredit Alcaraz. At the same time, some people just don't like on-court coaching, and I totally get that. I don't really like it either. Uh, but I think as as far as it is legal, 
I do believe it should be taken advantage of to the fullest extent. And I will, I will never, ever fault a player or a coach for, for doing what they're allowed to do. Um, but the question that you're asking here is a good one and a better one than what I just talked about. Uh, what's, what's the effect? How much of an effect does it have? I think it's small, but I think that small is is large. You know, this is a sport with small margins. Alcaraz, without Juan Carlos Ferrero in his box, is still an elite player. Elite. And that, over the years, will be proven. We will have proof of that. Because Juan Carlos Ferrero is not going to travel with Alcaraz 10 months out of the year. There are going to be events where Alcaraz says... You can stay home. You can have a little, a little break, a little rest. Uh, I'll, I'll do this on my own. And I believe this year that was in South America. I don't believe Juan Carlos Ferrero was with Alcaraz in South America when he won Buenos Aires and lost in the Rio final. And I don't believe Juan Carlos Ferrero, Ferrero was at Indian Wells. I could be mistaken. Maybe I'm, I'm mistaken, but I don't really think he was there when Alcaraz beat Medvedev. And then I think he showed up and met up with, with Carlitos in Miami. Um, so we are going to see that it is not it is not magical coaching that makes Alcaraz who he is. Uh, that said, it is meaningful and helpful, otherwise Alcaraz wouldn't do it, to have somebody's uh, perspective. And it, it shows amazing trust from Alcaraz to JCF, uh, Alcaraz is ready to accept it and execute it and use it. Uh, he's never vengeful or spiteful when it doesn't work, which a lot of players would be. It is the best case scenario of a coach-player relationship when it comes to building building a system where, where you're actually getting the benefits of on-court coaching, um, is what I'll say. And I'll also just throw out this because I don't think it's thought of much. And we have to be careful in tennis where we're we're not yet used to coaching being a part of tennis. So we need to be very careful about how we think of these things because we're not used to thinking about them at all. Not everything that Juan Carlos Ferrero suggests is going to be good advice. That's not, that has nothing to do with Ferrero. That's just how sports work. It happens in every single sport in the world. Your football manager doesn't always play the right tactic. That doesn't mean they don't know the sport. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that they're they aren't, you know, helping their club in the big picture. They are, hopefully, if they're decent. It's true in every other sport, all right? But not every piece of advice is going to be gold golden dust. So Keep that in mind. Time for a couple more. From D-Panel. This one will be quick. Hi, Gil. I hear the term transition game often by commentators, but have never heard a good definition. I would love to hear your definition of it. Also, could you name some of the players who excel at it and some who don't and why? All right, great question. Yeah, if, if, if any of you have stuff like this, I'm always happy to answer this stuff. Transition game refers to, particularly in singles, how well do you take a short ball hit an approach shot, and and hit your first volley. There is a particular footwork. There is a particular art to hitting good approach shots, and all of those things are taken into account when it comes to the transition game. And then ultimately, 
how well do you hit your volley? I think that is lumped in. But essentially it's it's uh how well do you move inside the court, hit the tennis ball, and continue to move forward and position yourself for a volley, which is uh which is a very it's a real technique that takes practice and some are better than others. Fetter, kind of the greatest, probably the greatest ever at it. Um, by the way, the, the term comes from transitioning from baseline to net. That's where the term comes from. From uh, Angela. Hey Gil, thanks for putting out such insightful content. You've been a great help in getting a new tennis fan like myself caught up on the nuances of the game. That's music to my ears. Question for you regarding Coco Goff. What do you think her chances are going into this upcoming U.S. Open given her recent success? What are your expectations for her round-wise in this particular tournament to consider it a success? Thanks so much. Well, she's made real strides here. I think the biggest things that she's changed since bringing on uh, Pere Ribot and Brad Gilbert, moving back to get more returns in play, which is uh, a really big thing for someone who, first of all, does a good job of playing high and heavy and is also someone who defends incredibly well. So look, it's like on return, get the return in play so that you're giving yourself a chance to scramble and get back in the point versus allowing your opponents to, to hit a, a lot of service winners. That doesn't make much sense for somebody who is so fast. Use that speed, get the return in play, use that speed. Uh, the other thing is I really love the way she's hitting her first serve. When Coco first came up, and obviously I, I start watching her when she's 14 and she's playing Wimbledon, right? I'm seeing her hit serves 116, 117. I'm thinking, holy cow. When Coco Goff is 19 years old, she's going to have by far the biggest serve in women's tennis. I'm just telling you, that's what I thought back then. I was wrong. That's not how it's played out so far. But I think she also got away from bombing the serve, from hitting the flat serve and trying to produce as much speed as she possibly can on the first serve, which is a mindset. You have to get yourself in that mindset. So between that adjustment on return and that adjustment on serve, and then getting rid of the mental stuff on the forehand where she just wasn't sure of herself and wasn't confident, all three of those things, it has her playing the best tennis I've ever seen her play. And I think she'll make probably like the semis. I got to see the draw, but I would expect her to to make the, the final weekend. And uh, I wouldn't have her quite winning the tournament, I don't think, but I'd have her going very, very deep. From just ninety ninety nine from Justin, Jimmy Connors. Why doesn't Jimmy Connors get the right amount of respect for his accomplishments in the tennis media? I think the media doesn't like Connors' personality, which is why he gets less shine than McEnroe or Agassi. Though Connors has more career accomplishment accomplishments than either of them. A couple reasons for this. First of all, he's older than McEnroe and Agassi, and uh, that kind of that distance, that time, you become a little bit forgotten. He hasn't been all that involved in the tennis world 
uh, since his retirement. Uh, you know, ever since he did create that tour for retired players, the, I think it was called the Champions Tour, and that that was a pretty big deal. But since then, uh, he's he's content to be pretty quiet. You know, he he likes to golf. He's lives in a beautiful place, Santa Barbara, California, and uh, he's very happy, kind of taking that being out of the public eye. I think. Um, does have a podcast with uh, his son, Brett Connors. I recommend that. It's great. Agassi, who wrote like the greatest book of all time, Open, which was, I, I also think just, I think it did crazy sales. And I think people who don't even watch tennis or care about tennis read Andre's book. And then John McEnroe, man. I mean, obviously he's got the commentary stuff. But he's also just a, a rock star beyond that. He's He was the voiceover artist for a, a Netflix show recently, Never Have I Ever, which he's hilarious in. And I actually really enjoyed the show. I, I recommend the show. So, yeah, Jimmy just it, – it's a little bit longer ago, and he doesn't have the kind of multimedia visibility that I think Agassi and uh, McEnroe have had. And then again, Sampras was just more recent and he got the record. That's how I'd break it down. Uh, but I, I think it's good to, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get to the comment is because I do think it's good to be reminded of Jimmy Connors' immense accomplishments. Next one is from Lizzie. Do you think that the wild cards for Venus Williams, Wozniacki, and Isner is fair to the young up-and-coming players who make a pretty good income, who can make a pretty good income? Can we completely eliminate wild cards and put everyone through qualifying? What's your opinion? I, I do hear a lot of people, they say, who deserves wild cards and who does not deserve wild cards? Nobody deserves them. That's the point of a wild card. You did not qualify on merit, but we want you in the tournament. So nobody deserves them. But how do you decide who's going to get them? If you're going to do that, let's do it for the fans, baby. The fans certainly want to see Wozniacki, Venus Williams, and John Isner. And they are going to fill seats, and people are going to go to the U.S. Open. And I think of, of the three of them, Venus is probably the least competitive, right? People are going to go to the U.S. Open, and Venus Williams is going to be booked on Louis Armstrong. And there are going to be people who see Venus, and they're going to be like, let's go into Armstrong to watch Venus. And they're going to have a smile on their face, and they're going to go home happy that day, knowing that they watched Venus Williams. I'm not going to complain about that. That'll do it. Uh, draw will come out tomorrow, Thursday, and then I will get working on that preview. Can't wait for that. Make sure, uh, make sure you stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.